But for your edification and help, I uh, went through the passages of Scripture. I got the Hebrew definition of the word. These are helpful. So there's the definition of the Hebrew word divorce, what that means. Then the etymology of that word is underneath it for you to use in that case. And then direct passages that deal with divorce in the Old Testament and New Testament. And then additional texts for consideration are on the back. So that's just for your own edification, for help. Um, I'll reference some of those passages as we go through Ezra 10 today. But I, we, my heart in this is that you would, you would find your answers to difficult questions in the Bible. Not from some teacher's opinion, even if it's mine. Um, but that you would find your answers to these things in the Scripture. Just like we urge our children to find your answers in the Bible. To love your parents and recognize they love you. But to find your answers in the Scripture. Your parents can be wrong. And as they love the Word of God, hopefully they will teach you to love the Word of God. But we find our answers in the Bible. We don't find them from great preaching. We don't find them from great other supplementary books. Though those things are good and they're helpful. We find our answers to difficult problems in the Scripture itself. So, as we approach this, we're going to read Ezra chapter 10 to begin with here. Um, And then we're going to dive right in. Now, we're not going to read the whole chapter. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read chapter 10. Verses 1 through 18, and then we're going to jump. There's a list of names after that. Then we're going to jump to verse 44. Um, that list of names is, is there to make a point in the Hebrew. It is a very profound point, and if you're reading this in the, in the, uh, as, an early, as a Jew in the, in the time when it was written, if you were reading this, then this list of names would have had the effect of making you pause. And take a deep sigh as to what was going on. Uh, so, let's read chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, and then jump to 44. Let's, or actually, we're going to read 1 through 19, and then jump to 44. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly, and Shechaniah, the son of Jehal, and of the sons of Elam addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and married foreign women from the people of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashab, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking 
water for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. A proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And if anyone did not come with within three days by the order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled and Jerusalem with them three days. It was the ninth month on the tw- on the 20th day of the month and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, to the God of your fathers, And do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land, from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many. And it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. for Nor is this task for one day or for two. For we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times. And with them the elders and judges and everyone in the city. Until the fierce wrath of our God is over. Over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan the son of Ashael. And Jehaziah the son of Tikvah. Opposed this. And Meshulam and Shibathai, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra and the priests selected men, heads of their father's households, according to their father's houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now, there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Messiah, Eliezer, Jerib, Gedaliah, some of the sons of Joshua, sons of Josadak, and his brothers. They plagued themselves to put away their foreign wives. They pledged themselves to put away their foreign wives and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock of their guilt. Now just take your eyes and scan through these names. Just kind of look through them. As we've read Ezra, some of these names popped up before. Now verse 44. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even borne children. And that's the end of the book. That's the end of the book. Some of these people had even borne children. They had married foreign women. They had engaged in synchronistic worship. They had combined the house of Yahweh 
with the Canaanite gods. They had done this. And this is the state. They have families and children. And that's how the book ends. These people are in a mess. They're in a mess. And I just want you to understand that this is not something that is easy to deal with. Kids are involved. This isn't like, oh, a woman ran off and, you know, married a, a man married some other woman and divorced his wife and he's, you know, had some sort of tryst and now he's, you know, he's been scolded and now he's going, okay, well, we got to set this right and that woman is going to leave him anyway. Like, that's not what this is. This is people who grew up in the land marrying the person who's next door. Who they went to high school with. Who they work with. Who they love and they're part of their lives. Like this is, this is not simple. Indeed, it never is. This kind of thing never is simple. And I say that because at the outset, it's easy to look at something like this and go right, wrong. And just go, well, they should put off their foreign wives. The text is very purposeful. This is hard for Ezra. That even the sky seems to understand this is insanely difficult. Did you notice the drama of the scene? How it's raining? You couldn't ask for a better Hollywood picture. All the people of Israel are gathered. And it's pouring rain. So bad is the rain that they're like, we can't stand out here and do this. This is hard. And the answers are not simple. Indeed, what we will see in this passage is that the law does not save. But rather, shows you only unsatisfying answers. So, let's consider a couple things. This is all before we even get to our notes here. Um, but let's, let's consider a couple things before we go any further. First, uh, the, the key passages on divorce are in that little sheet that's on the back table. But Deuteronomy 24, Matthew 5, uh, verse 31 through 32. And then again in 19, verses 6 through 8. And then Jeremiah 3, 1 through 10 talks about it. But... One, one of the things that we see here as we go through is that God in the law makes provision for divorce. Now, to understand why that is, Jesus explains God gave you divorce because of your hardness of heart. He didn't give you divorce because it's a wise decision. He didn't give you divorce because it's a good idea. He gave you divorce because he knows you're wicked and he knows that according to the law, you've got to have some way to answer this Difficult circumstance, even if the way that they answer it is unsatisfying and does not save. So Jesus tells the Pharisees, Moses gave you that because of your hardness of heart. He didn't give it to you because it's a good idea. He gave it to you because of your hardness of heart and he knows that there might not be another way out. There might not be another way out according to the law for you. And so uh, when you read those passages, just remember that. Remember that in Malachi chapter 10, verses 2 through 17 
God uses this as an illustration. And he says, Israel, in essence, in that passage, Israel has divorced God and has left their first love. And God says, this is the famous one, I hate divorce. And it's understandable as to why. Because he explains, you're, you're going to have kids that are affected by this. You're going to have a wife and a husband who are split by this. You have the image of God in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in husband, wife, father, God, husband, wife. You have this image of God and you have torn it in pieces. And God says, I hate divorce. There's so many levels to that. He hates it because you've marred his image. He hates it because we can't love the way he loves. He hates it because children are affected by it. He hates it because it's difficult and painful and not easy to handle. And as you read through those Old Testament passages, they hit you square in the face. That people are wicked and God is gracious. And God is gracious. That's what hits you over and over and over. At best, divorce is an unsatisfying answer to a horrible circumstance. Because the people in those marriages were in a horrible circumstance. They in a horrible place. Just think about some of the marriages you know about. The people in them are often in awful places that you would not wish upon anybody. Sometimes it's an abusive one. Sometimes it's an addicted one. Sometimes it's an adulterous one. All of those are difficult, awful, horrible circumstances. And we can't, as Christians, just look at them and go, well, you know, you got to stay. Their life might be in peril. And I don't mean their like, mental health. I mean their actual life. Their kids might be exposed to drugs constantly. These are real situations. I've, I've spent years in ministry. I tell you, this happens all the time. And that divorce is an unsatisfying answer. It's an answer. But it's an unsatisfying one to a horrible, horrible circumstance. Because the consequences of it are painful. If you don't believe me, just go find somebody that's been divorced. Talk to them about the consequences. They're painful. And they're just, that's all, they're just consequences. It's just the result of having to have gone through that. So, in that, with that said, let's now look at what Ezra does here. Um, first, take note of some observations as we read through there. It changes chapter 9 to chapter to chapter 10 from first person to third person. And I think what, what the author is doing here, Ezra, who's recorded this, what he's doing is he is putting you in the story and making you feel the way he, his pain feels in this. He's, he's putting you into it and he's going, this is how it felt. Ezra wept. Ezra was on his face before the Lord. Ezra was broken and humbled. Ezra is no longer the one telling the story. Now he is subservient to something else. He is subservient to the law all of a sudden. It changes from first person in chapter 9 where he's going, we've sinned. I pleaded before the Lord. I laid before the Lord to all of a sudden. Now Ezra is the character in the book. Now Ezra is subservient to the law. Did you notice as we read through, Ezra doesn't actually make any decisions here. He just answers. He just does what he's told. 
That's because a man under the law doesn't get to make decisions. A man under the law is not free. They're captive. They're captive to the law of sin and death. They're captive to it. And the only way for them to get any hope is to obey the law of God. They're captive. They can't get away from it. But Ezra changes from first person to third person, I think, to drive that home to you. Second, note that God doesn't speak in this passage. He doesn't talk. He doesn't say anything. The closest thing we get to God speaking is it rains really hard on everybody. There's a thunderstorm, basically. And it's a heavy rain. But it's not a tornado. It's not destructive. This is a sad scene. And God contributes only in this, that he weeps from the sky. That's it. That is is sad. This is depressing. Note the third, the drama of the scene. Again, you can't, you can't, Hollywood couldn't even come up with this. This is incredible. All of Israel is gathered to listen to the Levites and to Ezra proclaim the law, and it is just drenched. Have you ever been in that kind of rain where you're, for, where you're forced to be outside, but it's like you're, you feel like you've been swimming? It's so wet. Your hat is just like folded down. There's some great comedic scenes and some TV shows where the father goes out to get something from the grocery store and then comes back and it's been pouring rain and they walk in and they're, whoo, it's raining so bad and they forgot something and so they're like, go back out. And he's like, no. And they go back out and get it. I need that. And they go back out and they come back and they open the door. And you've seen it, right? Just when the door opens and they're standing there just completely and utterly soaked and just uh, holding a bag and they walk in and they've forgotten something else and they have to go back out again. This is, there's some great scenes that Hollywood has tried to copy what God does here. God pours rain on the people and it sets the stage for what's going on. And it gives us a little hint as we read that nobody's happy about this. There's no, this isn't a worship service. They're not about to have a feast. Everybody is depressed and sad. Now, the interesting thing about rain, and the interesting thing that it was just rain, is that rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Rain falls on everybody. Rain just falls indiscriminately. And sometimes it brings fruit. Sometimes rain is good, and you need rain to harvest. And rain is a good thing. And anybody who's lived down here for a while knows that we, at times, are desperate for rain. And at times, we want it to go away. Rain is good. Rain also brings floods, which bring damage. I live six or seven blocks from the Brazos River. And whenever a hurricane comes, I watch that thing like a hawk. I go check it every day because it's going to flood. That river will flood a week after the hurricane. It will flood. And the question is, how much is it going to flood? And do I need to move stuff in my house? Do I need to put stuff up? Do I need to be ready to drive somewhere else to stay for a couple of weeks? Because we're not going to have water or sewer because it's going to flood. I, I watch that thing closely because rain can mean bad things. 
Rain can mean judgment, but rain can also mean grace and mercy. And what's interesting is it falls on the just and the unjust alike. Sometimes the same rain that means bad for somebody means good for somebody else. Sometimes the same rain that means bad for somebody means good for something else. So here we've got that dilemma. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. The law is indiscriminate and lands on everybody. Ezra must present the law to everyone. And for some of them, it's going to be a, a pretty good deal. They Maybe they haven't taken a foreign wife. Maybe they have been faithful. And for some of them, it's going to be awful. For most of them, it's going to be awful. For, I mean, honestly, almost all of them. It's going to be awful. The rain comes to everybody. So, Ezra here in verses 2 through 6, it says, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Now just pause. Look at that. Men, women, and children gathering to him. These are families coming to him out of Israel. So these are Israel's families coming to him, weeping with him, praying. He is weeping and praying and giving confession. He's on his face before the Lord. He is being a good leader. Ezra is being a good leader. He is praying all these things. He's praying through all these things, seeking the Lord's face. And they come to him. And they come to him and they they talk to him, verse 2. And Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, and of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land but even now there's hope for Israel in spite of us, in spite of this. So they say here that they have, they confess that they've done this. And note, it's not that Israel has done it. Nobody's pointing fingers. No, we've done this. We've done this. This is a great attitude. Honestly, this is beautiful. What Ezra's doing, weeping on behalf of the people, praying and confessing to the Lord, this is a great attitude. This is good leadership. This is somebody going, I didn't do this, but we did it. Uh, he's not guilty. Ezra didn't marry any outside of his family. He didn't marry a foreign wife, but he knows this is wrong. And he goes, okay, but, but my brother does this. I'm guilty. My family does this. I'm, I'm guilty. My, my cousin does this. I'm guilty. I'm part of Israel, and I'm guilty. And the people of Israel come to him, women, children, and men, going, we're guilty of taking foreign wives to ourselves. And so they tell him, verse 3, Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God. Remember, Ezra is not speaking. This is them. Let us make a covenant before our, with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. Now, to put away there means to send away or cast off. That's what it means. Send these people away. Send these women and children away. Send these women and children. Just get the gravity of that. That is not like, you don't cheer here. Their recommendation to Ezra or their call to Ezra, rather, is to send these foreign wives and children away. To cast them off. So, he says, according to the counsel of my Lord. Again, Lord there in uh, verse 3. can be written, the Lord. It's 
it's the Hebrew word for my Lord, uh, which we would say Adonai, right? It's that, it's that same concept. I think that it's best to interpret this as them saying, according to the counsel of Ezra, um, according to the counsel of my Lord, you, you Ezra, the, the kind of governor. I think it's best to interpret it that way because the text is pretty, pretty, pretty clear that God's not speaking in this. Uh, he doesn't say anything. Um, it's even emphasized in the rain. Like there's no, he doesn't speak. Yeah. So the Lord, uh, to the counsel of the, my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God. So according to the counsel of Ezra and according to the counsel of the law, the commandment of our God, let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took an oath. So we see here Ezra is told what to do. He's told, let's cast these women off. Let's cast these children off according to the law. Now, as you read through those Old Testament texts that talk about divorce, it's not in there. To cast them off is it's not. It doesn't command them to cast them off. The prophets said, leave these foreign gods. Leave these foreign wives. And then followed it with, I hate divorce, by the way. The One of the big prophets that's a great example for us is Hosea. Who marries a woman of prostitution who is clearly a cult prostitute. Who is also worshipping foreign gods. And, and he has three kids with her. Jezreel, the Lord will judge. And then, not mine, and no mercy. Now, those last two kids, they're not Hosea's kids. That's why he names one of them, not mine. And so, he names these three kids. And what happens in the book of Hosea? Three chapters, the first three chapters give you this picture of the way God deals with Israel. And Israel goes off and marries foreign wives and and worships foreign gods, and what does God do? He stays completely faithful to them, calling them back to himself over and over and over, never leaving them, even though he has every right to do so. And then in chapter 3, what happens? He renames the kids. The Lord shall judge is still there, but not mine becomes mine, and no mercy becomes, I will have mercy on that. This is the picture of grace. Versus law. The law would demand that God cast Israel off and throw them away. God gives grace. Israel, on the other hand, because of their hardness of heart, according to Jesus, because of their hardness of heart, is about to divorce. And is about to shatter families across the board. Because they are under the law and they don't have a better answer. They are trapped under the law and they don't have a better answer. They know that the only answer to sin is obedience to the law. and They've already broken the law. And if you break the law once, you broke the whole thing. Break the law once, you broke the whole thing. Thank God for mercy and grace in Jesus Christ who lived perfect life for us on our behalf. And did not break the law so that we might trust in him and find righteousness and be given grace 
when we do wrong. We might be saved. The law does not free a man. The law does not forgive sin. And the law does not redeem. That is Jesus' job. Jesus does those things. Grace does those things. So, you see, Ezra is told what to do in verses 6 through 7. Then we have this dramatic scene in verses 9, or rather, in verses, yeah, in verses 9 through 14, we have this dramatic scene. Uh, let's go ahead and read 6 through 8 together here. And it says, Then Ezra withdrew from the house of God and went to the chamber of Johanan, the son of Elishab, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. Again, Ezra is a good leader. Look at what he does. The, he is broken over this, and his heart is overwhelmed. His stomach is in knots. He goes to, he doesn't even go to the place where he's supposed to be by himself. He goes to the community of faith to mourn. In his trouble and in his struggles, he is a, a great, there's a great example for us here of somebody who is confronted with sin and difficulty and he knows the only way for me to press through this is to be around the faithful, but I've, I've still got to mourn and weep. I can't even go to my own home. I have to go to where these other people are and stay with them for a while and get refreshment from the community, the body of faith who will mourn with me. This is wisdom. Ezra is being wise in his personal assessment. And I wish that we could just go through and leave it at that and go, look, so be wise and go find the community of faith in these difficult times. But that's not where the passage ends. So we have to keep reading this very difficult passage in verse 7. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that if anyone did not come within three days by the order of the officials, the elder all his, and the elders, all of his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. That will get you to come. That will get you to come to some difficult meeting. Could you imagine if we were having a meeting and it was like, we need to talk, I don't know, we need to talk about church lunch. All right, so we're going to have a meeting about church. We don't have any big problem. Like, there's no problems at Sovereign Grace. So it's like, we need to have a church lunch meeting. And so it's like, we were like, if you don't come, we're taking your house. <laughs> like, that, that's crazy, right? This is, this is insane. This is wild what they're doing. But this is the drama of the scene. Is so, this is so critical and so important that they answer and that they repent appropriately that they call everybody and they go, if you don't show up, you're out. You're out. If you don't show up, you're out. We're done. That's what they do. So, verse 9. Then, and remember, this is hard. None of this is, none of this is anything that you're going to clap for. This would be, this is the this is the sermon and the passage that they skip at the really happy churches where they clap at everything. They skip nine and ten of Ezra and they go straight to Nehemiah and they go, Nehemiah is a great leader. Yeah, Ezra is a great leader, but this is hard. Verse nine. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled with Jerusalem at Jerusalem within three days. That's incredible. All the people there assemble within three days' time. That in and of itself is near miraculous. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people 
sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. I love how that just gets thrown in there. Right? If you if you hadn't read this first and you were just reading it the first time, I hope you'll notice that you don't know the setting or why it's or that it's raining until that verse. They're trembling because of the heavy rain. Because the rain is so heavy, they're shaking. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, "You have broken faith and married foreign women." And so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourself from the people of the land, from the foreign wives. Now, this is very reminiscent to when they were in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, when they stand before God and they make a pledge that they're, not, that they're going to obey the Lord right before Moses goes and gets the law. It's very reminiscent to what they do right after they fail to keep the law and break the law. Remember that? Moses, it happens almost immediately. Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days and comes down with the law. And the people have broken the covenant with God before he has even come down the mountain. And then what happens right after? Let us make a covenant with our God again. Again, they do it again. In Deuteronomy, they do this again. Again, they do this again. When David becomes king, they do this again. When the prophets call the people to repent, very similar language is used to do this again. They are constantly trying to make a covenant to fix what they've done wrong. And the problem is the law is an unsatisfactory answer to a horrible circumstance. It is an answer and it is a legitimate answer. But it is an unsatisfactory one because there's no grace in it. There's no mercy in it. There's no forgiveness. There's only condemnation in the law. Children, praise the Lord for your parents that they are not law. That they're grace. Because if they were law, you'd be in much bigger trouble than you are. But because they love you and you're given grace, you're given grace after grace after grace, constantly, because God has put grace into your parents' hearts. Now, this dramatic scene here, all the people are gathered in the rain, and the scene does not get better. It doesn't get better. Ezra tells them, you need to put the people off. You need to put the, put, the, put the wives away. In verse 12, they say, the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so, we must do as you have said. But, okay, so we have a saying in our house, delayed obedience is, disobedience. boom. Delayed obedience is disobedience. These brothers and sisters Look at Ezra and go, we will do everything you said, but there's a lot of us and we're really wet. So can we have some time to kind of go back and get things in order and come back at an appointed time? Like maybe organize this thing, get this organized. Listen, it's bad enough already. Like, why not? Like, there's no, there's no good way out here. Why not do that? So they go, can we, can we wait? Delayed obedience is disobedience. There's no way around it, but you hear this, the disobedience happened a long time ago. They've already had wives and children with foreign wives, and realize the emphasis of they've married foreign wives is not just that they married somebody who's of another culture, that's fine. That happens all the time in the Old Testament. 
They married somebody and they took their religion on. That's what's happened. They took on their practice of their religion. Like that's, it's not just that they married somebody who's of another culture. Moses married somebody of another culture. That's not huge. You know, yeah, you've, got, you've got great examples. Ruth is a Moabite. She's not even a Jew. And she is in the line of Jesus. But she worships Yahweh. That's the difference. She worships the Lord. That's the difference. So here, it's not just that they've married foreign wives. It's that these foreign wives, they've married their religions too. So, he says, put it off. Put it off. And they go, hey, there's a lot of us. Can we wait a month or so? Kind of come back at an appointed time when it's not so wet. When we're not drenched in our trench coats. So they, they say this and then... They respond here, verse 14. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let our cities who have taken ref, who have taken foreign wives, let the men in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. And there were a couple that opposed. You see them there in verse 15. There are a few that opposed this idea. They opposed the idea of putting off their foreign wives. They they looked at Ezra and they said, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. Maybe we can work this out through some classes. Like maybe we can have a come to Yahweh and have a good marriage class. Maybe we can, maybe we can offer a program that will fix the difficulties here. Maybe there's a 12-step program that we could do as a group. Maybe, maybe oh, you know, we got this one Levite that wrote a book that is great about uh, intercultural marriage. And maybe we should do that. Maybe we should read that book as a, as a congregation. Maybe all of Israel should be, uh, should be gathered to come together to teach our children how to worship properly and to insist that, that we just, you know, we don't have to put away these foreign women. They just have to, they just have to like, we just, their, their idols have to be left in the closet. You know, maybe that, maybe that can happen. Maybe, maybe, ooh, ooh, maybe we could open a center like a halfway center, like half worship. Oh, we'll put it in Samaria. That's where it was before. Worked back then. Maybe it'll work now. See, all the answers are unsatisfactory. All of them are unsatisfactory. Dramatic scene comes here. Some people then oppose it in verse 14 and 15. And then there's the mess. The mess. The returned exiles did so, Ezra and the priests and selected men of the father's house, according to their father's houses, according to their father's houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to examine the matter. So this is, uh, this is a long time. It takes a, a month at least, and then they come down, and it's not until the first day of the first month that they've come to an end of the list. This is a long list, long list of people. So, verse 19, they pledge themselves to do this. And the book ends with this incredibly heart-wrenching line. With this incredibly heart-wrenching line. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. The end. Isn't that an unsatisfying ending to Ezra? No talk about the people returning and following the Lord from this point forward. No talk about 
salvation being granted. No talk about the foreign wives agreeing to worship Yahweh and putting off their old gods. No heart changes here. Nothing. Just pain. Women and children cast off. This is not good. This is not good. This is not pretty. This is a mess. This is a mess. And children and women are cast off and put away. So what do we do in the face of this chapter? Ezra has been such an encouraging book about building the temple and being ready for the return of the Messiah. But as we've gone through it, remember, every time we've read Ezra, we've seen that there's a better prophet, a better priest, a better king who's going to come and rescue. And he's not here in Ezra. He's not here yet. He's coming. And Ezra shows us that the law cannot save. The law cannot save. The law is good. The law is good, but it cannot save. So what are we to do with this? First, recognize that Ezra is about a people who are under the law. It's about a people who are under the law of God. They're under the law. As a result, they break the law. When they break the law, what happens? Sin. And sin leads to death. Sin leads to death, not just physical death at the end of your life, but eternal spiritual death. When we sin against God, we, we are doomed to die. The law is very clear that when you break it, you deserve death. The wages of sin is death. So, all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. Now, let's think about this in context of what we believe. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 25 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law was there to show us what was righteous and what is unrighteous. The problem with the law is when you fail at righteousness, you are now unrighteous. Done. When you break a part of the law, you break the whole thing. So the question then is, how do we get righteousness? Chapter 3, verse 21 through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to that righteousness. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified. Or you could even put and only are justified. uh, By his grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let's deal with the first issue. The first issue in Ezra is not should they divorce their husbands or wives. The first issue in Ezra is we are sinful people and we need salvation. And you don't get salvation through the law. The law is good. The law is good. It tells you the character of God. It tells you the righteousness of God. It tells you God is perfect and holy. It tells you how to live in community with each other. But the law does not save. It is at best an unsatisfying answer to a horrible circumstance. The circumstance not being married to foreign wives. The circumstance being sin. Sin and death. And so we have this answer in Jesus Christ, the righteous. You want to know? How to save marriages. 
Jesus. You want to know how to live past the divorce? It's Jesus. You want to know how to, how to make right in a world that, has, that is just wrong? It's Jesus. Mercy, grace, and Jesus Christ. Following Him with all that you are. And don't worry, we'll get back to the topic of divorce in a minute. But this is the first issue, more important than anything else. Sin must be addressed. And that sin is addressed in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. So, this was to show, this is verse 25, the second half. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. God has always been patient with people. He has always been patient. If you don't believe that God has always been patient, go read Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy straight through as fast as you can in one sitting and you will watch an incredibly patient God who lets His people Fall away and come back and fall away and come back and fall away and come back. And he is patient and loving and kind. There's only a few instances of stoning in the Bible. Only two of them are proved of by God. The rest of them are done by men. And they're done out of order. So, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. Let's let the scripture speak for this. It says, For all... Who rely, who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. They have to obey everything written in the law. Every little detail, every little thing has to be obeyed in order for the law to effectively not condemn you. So cursed is the one who relies on the law. If you don't think that you've ever broken a law, just go through the Ten Commandments and ask if you've ever broken one. Let's do it together, right? I'm just going to show you hand motions. Kids, this is really for the kids, so I'll remember my children, too. Uh, they should know this. First law, you will have no other gods before me. One, right? He's one. You have no other gods before me. Second, don't make any graven images. Don't cut out any idols. Don't make any idols. Scissors, cutting out an idol. Third, do not carry the word of the Lord. Do not carry the name of the Lord in vain. Words, right? Do not carry the name of the Lord in vain. Do not bear his word on you in vain or pointlessly. Fourth, uh, a family of four going to, going to church. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Going to church, right? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Five, honor your father and mother. And so, salute. Honor your father and mother. Six, do not kill. That's a fun one. Do not kill. Right? Do not murder. Seven, do not do not steal. No. Oh, sorry. I got that one mixed up. Seven is adultery. Two people sneaking off from the rest of the group. Do not commit adultery. Right? Three, do not steal. That's it. He's hiding something behind his back. So eight, do not steal. Right? You want to do it with me? Hide it behind your back? Eight, do not steal. I'm hiding it. Right? And nine, do not bear false witness. In a court of law, you put your hand on a Bible, your other hand's up like this. Do not bear false witness. And ten is easy. Don't covet. I want. Right? Really simple. If you want to know, have I been perfectly righteous according to the law, go through those ten. Guarantee you haven't. And if that's not enough for you and you're like, I've done all of those perfectly, which is probably a lie, which means you've already broken one of them. But the if you've if you've done all these perfectly, there are 357 more. 
357 more laws that you have to perfectly obey. Some of them have to do with being obedient to your parents. And delayed obedience is? There you go. Disobedience. I love that he chimes right in every time. Right? And just to be fair, my kids are very obedient. And they don't delay. Um, they're great. Most of the time. I mean, we all. Let's get back to the scripture. So it says, now, is ev- now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. So you don't get justified by God. You don't get made righteous by obeying the law. That's not how that works. The law points out your unrighteousness. The only way to be made righteous is by faith. Trusting in Jesus. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So the one who does the acts of the law shall live by them. It's phrased another way in scripture as well. If you live by the law, you'll die by the law. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You are freed from the law of sin and death by Jesus because Jesus takes it upon himself in your place and acts as your substitutionary atonement. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5.21. You should memorize this. This is a great one. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We are literally exchanging our sin for his righteousness. He gives us a new heart, a new being, a new person. He makes us new, and he takes our old upon himself and crucifies it, that we would have life, and have life eternal, and life present now. Again, Galatians three twenty-one through 26. Is the law then, so here's the question, is the law then contrary somehow to the promise? If you get saved through the promise and not through the law, then is the law contrary? No, of course not. Certainly not. For if a law had been written that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Everything. Everything is imprisoned under sin. Just let that land on you a little bit. Ezra is guilty of everybody else's sin. Everything is imprisoned by the law. Everything. Imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Repeating the same thing to make sure we get it. So then, the law was our guardian or tutor or schoolmaster or instructor. Any of those words work here. It was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are sons of God through faith. You are free from the law of sin and death. In Christ Jesus, if you have trusted in Him for salvation, you don't have to be perfect. Under the law, you had to. Now, you get to do righteousness. Now, you get to work in righteousness. Because the righteous blood of Jesus Christ has covered your sin, and it has also covered your heart, it has also covered your hands. And now, the things that you do with your hands 
a reflection of the heart inside you. This is beautiful salvation. Back to Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 25, just because it's good to read it again and be reminded. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You are no longer under the law, but under grace. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Chapter 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, when Ezra stands before the people and he delivers the law, they find an unsatisfying answer to a horrible circumstance. Back to the issue of divorce. Now that we've covered this, sin is addressed in Jesus Christ. And in no other way. Back to the issue of divorce. Divorce is an unsatisfying answer to a horrible circumstance. Paul knew this. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you see Paul talking about this. In chapter 7, in particular in verses 10 through 16. We're not going to fly through and read that right now. But um, I wanted to bring it to your attention. So how does one under grace respond to intermarriage? Both to someone who has been divorced. And to somebody who's in a horrible circumstance and might be getting divorced. How does one respond to this? Well, Paul gives us a pretty good answer. First, simply try not to start that way. You try not to start in that circumstance. As a Christian, you are capable of granting grace and mercy and living in righteousness. So children, when you're looking for a spouse... Find a godly person to marry who loves the Lord. Character is more important than talent or skill or attractiveness. Character is more important. Find a godly person to marry. Second, if someone finds themselves in a position where divorce seems to be the only option, um, or in the position Paul gives us pretty clear instructions. He says, one, don't divorce. That's what he says first. Stay with your wife or your husband if you can. But if you find yourself in an unbelieving spouse and the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, then let them go. And he uses a very specific phrase. He says, you are not bound to that marriage. Now, some of my brothers who have been divorced have a harder stance on this than I do. So I'd, I'd urge you to talk to them about it. I'd be direct. They're, they're not afraid of you. Go ahead. Talk to them. The, and they, they have a harder stance than I do. John Piper has an extremely hard stance on this. What do you do when someone's divorced and they want to get remarried or there's some other marriage? Well, Paul seems to indicate that if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, you let them go and you're not bound to that marriage. So you're free. And in Christ, indeed, sin has been addressed and you can now live in grace with yourself and with others. And the body of the church ought to help you learn to walk as best you can in grace to make wise decisions from that point forward. If you found that you divorced somebody before you were a Christian, you got married to them after you were a Christian. And now you found out that that person is a non-Christian. Paul's urging to you is if they want to stay with you, stay with them. 
they want to stay with you, stay with them. But if they want to leave, you let them go. It's a hard situation, but that's what the church can help with. The church can help people in those situations and talk to them, help them make wise decisions in the circumstances that they find themselves in. Because unlike Ezra, unlike Ezra, we are not beholden to the law. We are not under the law. We are now free to obey the law when we can. And we are free in grace to find forgiveness and redemption even in the law. Even in our obedience to it, we're, we're free to find grace and to live above the world that we're in. And then third, remember that there is forgiveness for all who trust in Jesus, no matter how bad your circumstances are. No matter what you have done in the past, no matter how evil you have been, no matter what you have failed to do, there is forgiveness for all who trust in Jesus Christ. And not partial forgiveness, not sort of forgiveness, complete forgiveness. You see, Jews were given a law to, to tell them exactly everything that they were supposed to do in the world perfectly. And they tried really hard to follow it. God shows them this and he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, do not say this is too hard for you. Don't say it's too hard because I gave it to you and I'm right here. That's what he says to them. Don't say it's too hard. That's the John Elkins remix, but that's what he says. Don't say it's too hard for you. That's a literal phrase in there. Don't say this is too hard for you. Who will bring this down to us or who will take us up to it? This is not too hard for you for I have come down and I've given you this law and I've put it before you and you can and will do it. And then they don't. Over and over and over they don't. And that law was there to show all of humanity, every person in humanity, that we need Jesus to change our hearts. We need Jesus to change our hearts. And we need Jesus to change who we are. And in changed economy of hearts, we live in a world that is fractured by sin, that we have fractured by our own hands in sin. But we live in such a way as to be righteous amidst sin. Because Christ has made us righteous. And we can listen to Him and we can walk with Him. No matter how great your sin is, no matter how wicked you've been, no matter how awful things have been in your life, no matter what circumstances you've been in, there is forgiveness and freedom and love in Jesus Christ for you to simply believe and trust in Jesus and find salvation. And in the midst of things like divorce and in the midst of things like like intermarriage, in the midst of of past sins rearing their heads at you, you can say without a doubt, I've been forgiven in Jesus Christ. I am no longer under the law of sin and death. I'm under grace. And because I'm under grace, I am able to live in righteousness and truth. I'm able to do this. Father, we pray that that you would uh, redeem and rescue